Happy Mother's Day. I, I love Mother's Day. I love my mother. Uh, I love my kid's mother. It's, it's a great holiday. And we thought, what better way to celebrate mothers than to preach that sort of classic Mother's Day passage of scripture about persecution and suffering? Because who knows persecution and suffering better than mothers, right? <laughs> Today, we are continuing in the series that we've been in uh, called Counterculture, looking at the book of First Peter. And it's a book that's written to new Christians who are living under the persecution of Rome and, and others uh, in the cities that are around this fledgling church. And so far, this whole book has been about how these Christians, these persecuted Christians, should respond to the suffering and injustices that they've experienced and that they're going to continue to experience. And Peter started off the book by reminding them of who they are. I remember when Ian, our oldest, was, uh, he had turned five and we knew that he was going to be going off to school, to kindergarten for the first time. And I think both Kara and I were kind of concerned. I mean, up until this point, we had been the primary shapers of Ian, the primary shapers of his identity, of what he believed and who he was, how he treated others. We had shaped that, but now he was going to get on a bus and be taken to some faraway school and, and where people were going to start shaping him. I mean, it kind of freaked us out. So every day, Karen and I would walk Ian to the bus stop and we'd wait there with him. And right as Ian was getting on the bus, we would say, Ian, we love you. Remember who you are. And, and what we meant by that was, as kids on the playground, try to define your, your identity in all kinds of different ways. As, as teachers introduce you to new ideas and as you begin to question, as you begin to have doubts, remember who you are. Remember how we shaped you. Let me be really clear. By the third child, uh, our morning routine has changed quite a bit. Basically, they, you know, they go out the door and we, we yell out behind them like, did you even brush your teeth or change your underwear? <laughs> but back on our first child, we were actually good parents. And we wanted our child to remember who he was. And I think that's at least in part what Peter is doing here at the beginning of 1 Peter. He's saying, as you face these challenges, remember who you are and respond accordingly. He says, you are chosen. You are ransomed. You are forgiven and adopted. You are living stones. You are a holy nation who's been called out of darkness to be light walkers. Remember who you are because of what Christ has done. And then live like that. He then addresses in the following chapters kind of each of the different social groups within the church specifically. And he tells them how they should respond to the power they have or the power they don't have. The power of the government over the people. The power of masters over their slaves or servants. The wives' relationship to their husbands. And finally, the husbands' relationship to their wives. How we respond, Peter says, to injustices and to persecution and to power imbalances says a lot about who we are. And it says a lot about who God is. And throughout this whole book, we've seen these themes begin to emerge, that our identity matters, our conduct matters, our response to injustice matters, our relationships matter, because our witness matters. And it is through us and in how we respond to one another that the world will see who God is. It's a place to write this in your notes. We are called to be a witnessing community. The church exists to witness to who God is. Well, today we want to pick up where we left off last week. We're, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in, in verse 8. And if you don't have a Bible at home, there's some great resources like Bible Gateway. Uh, there's a, the, the Version Bible app that are just phenomenal. Today I'm going to be reading from uh, the New Living Translation, starting in verse 8. And there's a change. There's a change in the tone. There's a change in what Peter is saying. We'll see. 
He says, starting in verse 8, finally, all of you, and, and that in and of itself is a change. After speaking very specifically to these different demographics within the church, Peter now says, okay, one more thing, one last thing, and this is for all of you. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Peter lists these, these five things that all believers should do, and all of them are countercultural. He says, be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. I mean, those were countercultural then, and they're absolutely countercultural now. Can you imagine an organization or a business or an institution who had these five values as their core values? Can you imagine if, if Facebook or Google or Amazon put these five principles on the walls of their boardrooms and had, had them drive everything they did? Can you imagine if, if a, a news outlet or schools were driven by a passion to build unity, sympathy, and love? If commerce and business and government was marked by a humble tenderheartedness? You can't, right? That's not how culture works. That's not how business works. That's not how government works. I said there was a change in the tone of this text, but really, I mean, this is the same kind of stuff that Peter's been calling them to all along. What's the change? The change is in the recipients. The change is in the, the audience of, of who should be changed, who should be treated differently. It's the recipients of the behavior. It's all of the each others that we see in this passage. Up until now, the focus has been on how believers should respond and react and interact with a hostile community around them. But now the focus turns inward. It's how they're supposed to interact with each other. I mean, in the very next verse, Peter's attention will shift back to interacting with outsiders. But here, it's like he's pausing that conversation and saying, okay, let's just have a family conversation for a minute. Why the sudden shift in his audience? Scott McKnight in his commentary on 1 Peter says this, whenever Christians are under threat, they need to be harmonious and love one another if they're going to be able to make an impact on the outside world. In fact, they may need to unify simply in order to survive. I think at least in part, Peter is calling them to treat each other this way, not only because of the impact that it's gonna have on the world, they need to do this in order to be able to survive the persecution and the injustice they experience in everyday life. Peter's saying, if we don't love each other, if we don't care for each other, if we don't sympathize with each other, if we can't find a way to be united with each other, we won't survive this. We need each other. And I would argue that just like they needed each other to survive the persecution, we need each other to survive the social pressure that we face. McKnight continues, if Peter's churches were havens in which people could endure persecution, ours today ought to be havens in which people can endure the onslaught against personal morals and identity. In a culture where our worldview is increasingly being shaped by social media and Netflix and corporations and, and education systems, where our identity is more and more about our income and our status and our position and our power and our beauty, as Dan talked about last week, we need each other. If our faith is gonna survive. We need each other simply to remember who we are. You see, we are called to not only be a witnessing community, 
We're called to be a sustaining community. We need each other in order to be the community that sustains each other, that cares for the wounded, that celebrates with those who celebrate, but also grieves with those who grieve. We're called to be that sort of sustaining community for one another. And not just for our sakes, but so that we might survive and go out and continue to impact the world. If the mission dies in us, the mission dies with us. And then Peter goes right back into how we should interact with the world, starting here in verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Just like that, Peter shifts gears, and he's talking about the impact in the world around them again. Dennis Edwards, in his commentary on 1 Peter, called The Story of God, uh, writes this. He says that the adjectives in verse 8 are qualities that foster unity. And the actions of verse 9 comprise some of the difficult choices that contribute to peacemaking. Not only are Christians called to, non, to be non-retaliatory when facing threats, they must go further than that. They must repay evil deeds and insults with a blessing, an act that calls down God's grace, which is a translation of the Greek eulogia. I think that's how you pronounce it. It sounds very much like what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew when he said, you've heard the law says that the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek too. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. But I'll tell you, I mean, that sort of counterintuitive, counter-cultural response seems almost impossible. How do, we become, how do we become a people that are even capable of that sort of response? Well, back in verse 8, Peter, when Peter tells them to be of one mind and love each other and be humble and compassionate and sympathetic and all those things, it's not just so that they would be sustained. Certainly it's that. It's also so they might be equipped, trained up. It's, it's not that we shouldn't behave that way in the rest of the world. We absolutely must. Peter makes that really clear throughout the rest of the book. I think his point in taking this time to pause and have a family conversation, this is just for us now language, is to say, at least in part, that this starts with us. He's saying, remember you, who you are. If you can't treat each other this way, how could we possibly ever bring that into the world? There's a place to write this in your notes. We are called, yes, to be a witnessing community and a sustaining community, but we are also called to be an equipping community. I was trying to give an analogy, but it, it's like the church needs to be like the greenhouse where the conditions are made right for new seeds to begin to grow and be watered and cared for. It needs to be like an incubator where the young, fragile faith can be nurtured and kept safe. It needs to be like the locker room where the team can huddle up and be taught and trained and sent then back out onto the field. The church needs to be like the, the family dinner table where the family can gather and share and celebrate and mourn. It, it needs to be like the emergency room where, where the wounded can come to receive care and like the hospital where those wounded can then find healing 
and restoration. And the analogies can go on and on and on. We are called to be a community that does life together so well that it then sends us out equipped and trained to respond to a hostile culture in countercultural ways. To be a community that will increasingly look less and less like the majority culture around us. In real ways, we are called to be an alternative community. As followers of Christ, our communities need to be different than the culture around us, representing the character of God and the character of Christ and his kingdom in the midst of this kingdom. Again, McKnight says this, it can, be re- it can be easily said that what the world needs from the church is an alternative society, a society in which people are treated as genuine individuals worthy of love and instruction. As we become that kind of a community, the Holy Spirit that equips us and begins to produce fruit in us that is distinct from this world. In a culture that seems to be more and more polarized and fractured, we will learn to be of one mind. That's countercultural. In a culture that seems more and more indifferent and hostile, we will learn to sympathize with each other. And that's countercultural. In a culture where humans are dehumanized and lives are devalued and people are trafficked, we will learn to love each other as brothers and sisters. And that's countercultural. In a culture that seems to be more and more calloused and insensitive to the plight of others, we will learn to be tender-hearted. That's countercultural. And in a culture that deifies celebrities and celebrates arrogance, we will learn to keep a humble attitude. That's countercultural. And we can't do it alone. We need each other to remind us of who we are and how that identity as children of God, as followers of Christ, should impact the way we live. We need a community that speaks life into us and calls us, calls us back to this life of Christ and doesn't just push us to always be one-upping one another. I remember the very first small group that Kara and I were in, and this was now many, many years ago, we decided that we were going to, in addition to studying God's word and praying and all those things, we were going to eat meals together. This is before we had kids, so it was simpler. And what we found was this pattern was developing that each meal got a little bit fancier. As we went to the next house, they would kind of one up the last meal. And finally, I remember literally making like filet mignon. No, no, it was a, it was a prime rib, like this super fancy meal that I spent the entire day on. We put out candles and it was just luxurious, right? And I thought, boy, they are really going to love, they're going to be so impressed with this. And it was great. Afterwards, one of the guys, John Ottaviani, if any of you guys know John, he said, um, what, if, what, if we, what if we didn't do this anymore? What if instead we just committed to, we're going to keep this simple. We're going to do pizza every time. And, and what, if, what if we could actually be a community of people that, that didn't drive each other to purchase the latest and the greatest cars and didn't drive each other to, to always be upgrading our houses? What if we could be a community of people, this little small group, that actually encourages us towards simplicity, towards prioritizing the things that need to be prioritized? I needed that. We, that group needed that. We need each other speaking truth into our lives. I heard a, a news story this week, and I, I wish I could find it to tell you the actual source, but then I, I can't find it. Uh, but essentially what it said was that pre-pandemic, our culture had hit a new low, a new low watermark on engagement and attendance in church. And, and COVID has now driven people even further away. 
this story, which wasn't on any kind of Christian radio or anything, basically the point was that people desperately need community. And for some reason, we are walking away in droves from perhaps the best possible source of that community. Again, McKnight says this, what people continually return to is the need for community that's driven by the divinely created need for love. The church of Jesus Christ in its deepest sense is to be precisely that, the living incarnation of the love of Christ that is expressed for one another and the world. And that's not like a marketing or spin. It's not positioning the church to make the gospel look attractive like Dan said last week. It's about the church being the church that scripture points to, the incarnational presence of Christ in this world. And that is a beautiful, attractive thing. At Emmanuel, we believe that our mission as a church is to help more people become more like Christ in authentic community. And we want to invite you to join us in that mission. Join us in creating the kind of community that we see in Scripture. A community of Christ followers who are equipping and sustaining one another. Who are encouraging one another to go deeper into this counter-cultural life. To become more and more like Jesus Christ. We want to invite you to join us in welcoming new people as they come to church on Sundays. But also welcoming them as they want to become a part of our church family. To go deeper into community with us, to have greeters at the doors of the buildings, but also have systems and groups and readiness to welcome them into our community. I want to invite you to help us build that kind of community. And there are lots of ways that you can engage. Join our welcome team or the hospitality team, uh, greeting people as they come and kind of creating that welcoming atmosphere that says, we want to be the most welcoming place in Shoreview, in the Twin Cities, in the world. Serving is a phenomenal way to kind of create that sort of community. Not just because you're literally building that sort of community, but as you build it, you get to experience it too. And that's true across the board. I mean, serving with kids or with teens, serving on the setup and teardown team, serving at the work days in the studio, serving on the worship team, all of those are opportunities to build, but also experience that kind of community. See, it has to go beyond like one hour a week on Sundays. You can't build this kind of radical countercultural community in one hour a week. It has to spill over into our real lives as well. We have to find ways to do life together. One, one of the ways that we do that here at ECC is through what we call small church. Small church is the primary way that we do small groups here at ECC. They're groups of people that meet in homes, and there are sort of four things that define what all small churches do, and all of them are about the each others. We eat together. We uh, we dig into food with each other. We grow together. We dig into the Word of God with each other. We be together. We care for and pray for and celebrate and mourn with each other, and we serve together. We encourage and equip and sustain each other to serve in the church, in the world, in our schools, in our workplaces, to serve our community. And how each of those dynamics might play out in each small church is a little bit different. But we think that this is the kind of environment where we can begin to build that greenhouse, incubator, locker room, hospital, whatever kind of culture, kind of alternative culture, the kind of place where we can practice and experience each other's. In the small church that we're a part of, 
uh, is made up of people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different histories, different politics, and different ages. And we don't all agree on everything, but we are getting the opportunity to practice and experience what it means to, to learn to love each other, to learn to be in unity. Join, join a small church, or even better, lead a small church. As we have more and more people joining us, we need more and more homes that are willing to open their doors, or I guess right now, like their backyards and garages, because we're in a pandemic, but are willing to open their homes to these new people and say welcome, to welcome people deep into community. So whether you're welcoming new people on Sundays into church or welcoming new people more deeply into the community of your homes, we can all be involved in building that kind of community where more people are becoming more like Christ. And ultimately, that's the point. This is, this is not about attracting more people to our club. or Ultimately, it's, it's not even about you know, building better community. Yes, those things are important, but it's becoming about more like Christ. That's what it's really about. And we need each other in order to do that. I want to invite you to take a step, a next step, and whatever that is for you. If you go to emmanuel.church slash next, there's a connect card that you could fill out. And on that, you can let us know what are some areas that you'd like more information about serving or about joining a small church or about growing in your faith, about what it means to really even be a follower of Christ. I invite you today to go there, even right now, pause this and go there. I'll be back. I'll be here when you hit unpause. Go there and explore and let us know how we can connect you into, into building this sort of community with us. Peter ends this chapter then by taking his readers back to their story, to the story that he keeps pointing to, back to their identity. And it's the story of Jesus. In verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Christ suffered too, he reminds them, but it wasn't for his sins. It was for ours. Christ died to bring you safely home to God. This is identity language. Again, remember who you are and remember what Christ did to make you who you are. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He's seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Christ suffered unjustly at the hands of evil men, just like you are suffering, he says to them. But Peter is saying, Christ is now vindicated. Christ went from being dishonored and shamed to the place of highest honor next to the Father in heaven. He's now in a place of honor and all the angels and authorities and powers, even the evil ones, will accept his authority. Peter's reminding them that we are called to be a hopeful community. Throughout this book, he points to this future hope, a hope that can be held onto and claimed now, a someday hope. And we are called to be a someday community. Someday God will make all things new, all things right. There will be no more evil, no more injustice, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. We can look forward to that someday. We can remind each other of that someday. We need to remind each other of that someday hope that we have as followers of Christ. I want to invite you, don't just watch community. 
Don't just be consumers of community. Build that kind of community with us. Pray with me. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example given to us by 1 Peter and by these early Christians. And most importantly, we thank you for the example that was given by you of what it means to live for others, what it means to live so counterculturally that you are glorified, that your kingdom is advanced. God, this is more than we can do. This is not how we're wired. It's not how we're built. Holy Spirit, we ask you to make these realities in our lives. Empower us to live in a way that brings glory and honor to you and community for us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.